Shabbat Shalom. My name is Ephraim Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and thank you for once again joining us here for our Arab Shabbat broadcast here on B'nai and Lion and Lamb Ministries. Everything that we do here, um, if you're joining us via Facebook Live or our mobile app or any one of our television apps, um, we thank you for watching this broadcast and uh, being a part of us, inviting us, our ministry and inviting us into your home each and every week. Um, it is uh, March 27th, and uh, we're still keeping up to date with everything that's going on in the news. Um, we are putting out updates periodically if anything is changing as far as the ministry is concerned. Um, so just uh, stay in touch with us on our Facebook page. Um, if anything changes, we'll of course keep you guys up to date. But for the meantime, the ministry continues to operate. We continue to worship the Lord, to minister to you with our teachings and our broadcasts. And um, so if you are enjoying this broadcast and any of the other things that we do here at Line of Land Ministries, we always ask that if the Lord would stir in your heart to make a donation, you can do so at llgive.com and we can maintain the work of the Lord that we do here at this ministry. Our event registrations are still open as we're still planning for those to take place. So you can go to shavuotevent.com and register your family for our uh, Feast of Weeks celebration in Dallas, Texas, uh, coming up at the end of May. You can go to campyeshua.com, register your youth for our Messianic Youth Summer Camp that's happening August 2nd through the 7th. And also tabernaclesevent.com to register for the Feast of Tabernacles uh, that takes place in uh, October, where we celebrate with uh, many Brethren, the appointed time in the Feast of Tabernacles. Once again, thank you for being a part of this ministry. We hope that you enjoy the rest of this broadcast. Now, let us set apart this week from the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlom Asher Kereshonu Vemitotav Petzivonu Lecha Lekner Shel Shabbat Amen Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Now the Kiddush, the blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Amen Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Chamotzi, the blessing over the bread. Chamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. 
Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu etarnai ham vorach, Baruch etarnai ham vorach le'olam vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai. Michamocha nedar ba'chodesh. No rotechilot osefele osefele. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, Lord, there is none else. You are awesome in praise, doing wonders, O Lord, who is like you. Amen. And now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech ha'olam, asher natan lanu et derech, ha'yeshua b'mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha'shabat, la'asot et ha'shabat, ladrotam barit olam, b'nei avayom b'nei Yisrael othi le'olam, k'sheshet yamim asadunai et ha'shamayim v'et ha'aretz v'yom ha'shavi shavat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Malchuto Le'olam Vayed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai Ochecha, b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha. 
Veheyu hadevarim ha'ale asher nechime zavcha hayom alevavcha. Vashinan tam lavanecha, vadepardabam beshiftacha, vayetacha, uvlechtacha, vidarech ushakbika, ufkumika. Ukeshatam la ota yadecha, vaheyu la totavolt binanecha, uketatama mazuzo batecha, uvisharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. Lord 
Make these broken weary bones, make these broken weary 
Shalom. Please join us for the reading of Parashah Vayikra. Chapter 1 Then Adonai called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to Adonai, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering for the, from the herd, he shall offer it, a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that it may be accepted before Adonai. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. He shall slay the young bull before Adonai. And Aharon's sons, the priests, shall offer up the blood and sprinkle the blood around on the altar that is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall then skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aharon the priest shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aharon's sons the priest shall arrange the pieces, the head, and the suet over the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. Its entrails, however, and its legs shall be washed with water. And the priest shall offer up in smoke all of it on the altar for a burnt offering, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Adonai. But if his offering is from the flock of the sheep or the goats for a burnt offering, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before Adonai, and Aharon's sons, the priest, shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. He shall then cut 
it into pieces with its head and its suet, and the priest shall arrange them on the wood which is on the fire that is on the altar. The entrails, however, and the legs he shall wash with water, and the priest shall offer all of it, and offer it up in smoke on the altar. It is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Adonai. But if his offering to Adonai is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering from the turtle doves or from young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar and wring off its head and offer it up in smoke on the altar, and its blood is to be drained out on the side of the altar. He shall also take away its crop with its feathers and cast it beside the altar eastward to the place of the ashes. Then he shall tear it by its wings, but shall not sever it, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar." On the wood which is on the fire, it is a burnt offering, an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Adonai. Chapter 2 Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to Adonai, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall then bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and of its oil with all of its frankincense. And the priest shall offer it up in smoke as its memorial portion on the altar, an offering by fire of soothing aroma to Adonai. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aharon and his sons, a thing most holy, of the offerings to Adonai by fire. Now when you bring an offering of a grain offering baked in an oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mixed with oil or unleavened wafers spread with oil. If your offering is a grain offering made on the griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it into its bits and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. Now, if your offering is a grain offering made in a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. When you bring in the grain offering which is made of these things to Adonai, it shall be presented to the priest, and he shall bring it to the altar. The priest shall then take up from the grain offering its memorial portion, and shall offer it up in smoke on the altar as an offering, by fire of a soothing aroma to Adonai. The remainder of the grain offering belongs to Aharon and to his sons, a thing most holy of the offerings to Adonai by fire. No grain offering which you bring to Adonai shall be made with leaven, for you shall not offer up in smoke any leaven or any honey as an offering by fire to Adonai. As an offering of your firstfruits you shall bring to them to Adonai, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your Elohim shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Also, if you bring a grain offering of early ripened things to Adonai, you shall bring fresh heads of grain roasted in fire, grits of new growth, for the grain offering of your early ripened things. You shall then put oil on it and lay incense on it. It is a grain offering. The priest shall offer up in smoke its memorial portion part of its grits and its oil, with all its incense, as an offering by fire to Adonai. Chapter 3 Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace offerings, if he is going to offer out of the herd, whether male or female, he shall offer it without defect before Adonai. He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, and slay it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, and Aharon's sons the priest shall sprinkle the blood around on the altar. From the sacrifice of the peace offerings he shall present an offering by fire to Adonai the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aharon's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of a soothing aroma to Adonai. But if his offering for a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai is from the flock, he shall offer it male or female without defect. If he is going to offer a lamb for his offerings, 
Then he shall offer it before Adonai, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering, and slay it before the tent of meeting, and Aharon's son shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. From the sacrifice of peace offerings he shall bring as an offering by fire to Adonai, its fat, the entire fat tail, which he shall remove close to the backbone, and the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. Then the priest shall offer it up in smoke, on the altar as food, an offering by fire to Adonai. Moreover, if his offering is a goat, then he shall offer it before Adonai, and he shall lay his hand on the head of, and slay it before the tent of meeting, and the sons of Aharon shall sprinkle its blood around on the altar. From it he shall present his offerings as an offering by fire to Adonai, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. The priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar as food, an offering by fire for a soothing aroma. All fat is Adonai's. It is a perpetual statute throughout your generations and in all your dwellings. You shall not eat any fat or any blood. Chapter 4 Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which Adonai has commanded not to be done, and commits any of them, if the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer the, to Adonai a bull without defect as a sin offering, for the sin he has committed. He shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before Adonai, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull, and shall slay the bull before Adonai. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull, and bring it to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood, and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before Adonai, in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before Adonai in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove from it all the fat of the bull of the sin offering, the fat that covers the entrails, and all the fat which is on the entrails, and the two kidneys, with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys, just as it is removed from the ox of the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest is to offer them up in smoke on the altar of burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and all its flesh with its head and legs and its entrails, its refuse, that is, all the rest of the bull, he is to bring out to a clean place outside the camp where the ashes are poured out, and burn it on wood with fire. Where the ashes are poured out, it shall be burned. Now if the whole congregation of Israel commits error, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly, and they commit any of the things which Adonai has commanded not to be done, and they become guilty... When the sin which they have committed becomes known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering, and bring it before the tent of meeting. Then the elders of the congregation shall lay their hands on the head of the bull before Adonai, and the bull shall be slain before Adonai. Then the anointed priest is to bring some of the blood of the bull to the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before Adonai in front of the veil. He shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar, which is before Adonai in the tent of meeting, and all the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He shall remove all its fat from it and offer it up in smoke on the altar. He shall also do with the bull, just as he did with the bull of the sin offering. Thus he shall do with it. So the priests shall make atonement for them, and they will be forgiven. Then he is to bring out the bull to a place outside the camp and burn it as he burned the first bull. It is the sin offering for the assembly. When a leader sins and unintentionally does any one of all the things which Adonai his Elohim has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a male without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the male goat and slay it in the place where they slay the burnt offerings before Adonai. It is a sin offering. 
Then the priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of the burnt offering, and the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering. All its fat he shall offer up in smoke on the altar, as in the case of the fat of the sacrifice of peace offerings. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, and he will be forgiven. Now if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which Adonai has commanded not to be done, and becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin which he has committed. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and all the rest of its blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat was removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings, and the priest shall offer it up in smoke on the altar for a soothing aroma to Adonai. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him, and he will be forgiven. But if he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring it a female without defect. He shall lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and slay it for a sin offering in the place where they slay the burnt offering. The priest is to take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and all the rest of the blood he shall pour out at the base of the altar. Then he shall remove all its fat, just as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall offer them up in smoke on the altar, on the offerings by fire to Adonai. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Chapter 5 now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of an unclean cattle or a carcass of an unclean swarming thing, though it is hidden from him and he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort his uncleanness may be with which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever manner a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to Adonai for his sin which he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin. But if he cannot afford a lamb, then he shall bring to Adonai his guilt offering for that which in, in which he has sinned two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first that which is for the sin offering and shall nip its head at the front of its neck, but he shall not sever it. He shall also sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The second he shall prepare as a burnt offering according to the ordinance. So the priest shall make atonement on his behalf for his sin which he has committed, and it will be forgiven him. But if his means are insufficient for two turtle doves or two young pigeons, then his offering for that which he has sinned, he shall bring a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall not put oil on it or place incense on it, for it is a sin offering. He shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take his handful of it as a memorial portion, and offer it up in smoke on the altar, with the offerings of Adonai by fire. It is a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his sin which he has committed from one of these, and it will be forgiven him. Then the rest shall become the priest like a grain offering. Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, 
If a person acts unfaithfully and sins unintentionally against Adonai's holy things, then he shall bring his guilt offerings to Adonai, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation in silver by shekels, in terms of the shekel of the sanctuary, for a guilt offering. He shall make restitution for that which he has sinned against the holy thing, and shall add to it a fifth part of it, and give it to the priest. The priest shall then make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering, and it will be forgiven him. Now, if a person sins and does any of the things which Adonai has commanded not to be done, though he was unaware, still he is guilty and shall bear his punishment. He is then to bring the priest a ram without defect from the flock, according to your valuation for a guilt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him concerning his error in which he sinned unintentionally and did not know it, and it will be forgiven him. It is a guilt offering. He was certainly guilty before Adonai. Chapter 6 Then Adonai spoke to Moshe, saying, When a person sins and acts unfaithfully against Adonai, and deceives his companion in regard to a deposit or a security entrusted to him, or through robbery, or if he is extorted from his companion, or has found what was lost and lied about it and sworn falsely, so that he sins in regard to any of the things that a man may do, then it shall be when he sins and becomes guilty that he shall restore what he took by robbery, or what he got by extortion, or the deposit which was entrusted to him, or the lost thing which he found, or anything about which he swore falsely, he shall make restitution for it in full, and add to it one-fifth more. He shall give it to the one to whom it belongs on the day he presents his guilt offering. Then he shall bring to the priest his guilt offering to Adonai, a ram without defect from the flock, according to your evaluation for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him before Adonai, and he will be forgiven for any one of the things which he may have done to incur guilt. Thank you for joining us for the reading of Parashah Vayikra. Now in Parashah Vayikra, we see a description of the sacrificial system and how that works. Specifically, chapter 1 breaks down the Ola Karban, or burnt offering. Now this was typically offered by someone as an ecstatic praise for, uh, thank you Lord for blessing me in such a fashion. Uh, it was a free will offering. It was wholly devoted to Adonai, and that sacrifice was completely burned up on the altar. Then in chapter 2, we see the description of the Karban Mincha. Now, it's typically translated as grain offering, but Mincha doesn't mean grain. It actually means donation or tribute. It just so happens that this is a, once again, a free will sacrifice that, number one, is bloodless, and number two, uh, is typically, uh, as the description gives us, is of grain, of, of some kind of uh, fruit of the earth. Now, part of it is burnt up on the altar. as a, It's mixed with oil and frankincense, and it goes up as a, a pleasing aroma to Adonai. Uh, part of it is uh, used by the priests uh, in their, as part of their food. Uh, then we see chapter 3 moves on to the Karban Lezevach Shlamim. This means the, the peace or thanksgiving offering. Uh, and this was a, a free will offering that was often a um, essentially like a covenant uh, type offering. It was something that that you would bring as, as thank you for something. Uh, now, with this Thanksgiving, this Zevach Shlamim uh, offering, it was a meal. Part of it was burnt up on the altar. Adonai gets to enjoy some of it via the smell. Part of it was for the priest to provide food for them, and the other part of it went to the person who brought the offering themselves, so they got to enjoy of a meal. Then we see chapter 4, something completely different. This is the chatat, or the sin offering. 
Now, typically we view sin traditionally as something that's dirty or filthy. But chata'at is actually an archery term and it simply means to miss the mark. Uh, in fact, verse 2 of chapter 4 defines this for us because it uses this phrase that we're going to see repeated over and over. If a person sins unintentionally, in other words, they, they missed the mark. They didn't, they weren't trying to miss the mark, but they just, their aim wasn't true and they missed. This uh, uh, phrase is repeated in verse 13, in verse 22, and in verse 27. So this should tell us quite a bit about this sin offering and what it was for. It was for unintentional sin. Then we move into chapter 5, and here we see the asham, the guilt offering. Now, there were four reasons that were given in the first several verses of chapter 5 that someone would bring an asham or a guilt offering. The first reason, if you were to witness something and then you withheld evidence or you didn't speak out when you should have, and it came to light that you should have shared or didn't share information that you should have or whatever the case may be, when you became aware of that, that's when you were guilty and needed to bring this offering to be made right. Second thing, if you were to touch a carcass of a dead animal or something likewise that would render you unclean and unable to go into the tabernacle, uh, in order to resolve yourself of that guilt of touching something unclean, you would bring this asham, this guilt offering. Third, if you were to rashly swear something, do something that, uh, you know, swear something that you shouldn't swear, uh, and later someone tells you, you know, you shouldn't have said that. Or you swore something in a rash, uh, uh, a rational fashion, but you failed to fulfill it. And now you've been made aware that you failed to fulfill your vow. Um, in those scenarios, you were to bring a guilt offering because you had incurred guilt upon yourself. Fourth reason. If you lied or swore falsely about something, you would incur guilt upon yourself. And in order to be absolved from that guilt, you would need to bring this Asham, this guilt offering. But there's something very interesting that's here within this chapter. It says in verse 35, Thus the priest shall make atonement for him in regard to his sin, which he has committed, and he will be forgiven. Now, typically speaking, most of us have heard some kind of a teaching in our lifetimes where the sentiment is that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it was capable of atoning, covering over our sins, but not truly forgiving something of this nature. Okay, here's the problem with that uh, mentality. So the Hebrew word that's being used here where it says, and he will be forgiven, is the Hebrew word salach. Now this word is repeated in chapter 5, verse 10, verse 13, verse 16, and in chapter 6, verse 7, all in regards to the guilt offering. And in those verses, it says that he will be forgiven. Now, coming back to a wider perspective of all the different sacrifices, we have the Ola Karban, the burnt offering, the Karban Mincha, the grain offering, the Karban Lezevach Shlamim, the peace or thanksgiving offering. Those are the first three chapters of Leviticus. Those are the first three sacrifices that are described. None of them were for sin. Not at all. Have nothing to do with sin. One of them is even bloodless. Further, both the Chata'at, the sin offering of chapter 4, and the Asham, the guilt offering of chapter 5, were for unintentional sin or guilt. Both provided forgiveness and atonement for the offerer. The problem that we have here is that it's a, not a conversation of was the sacrificial system able to, to provide forgiveness? Because it absolutely was. 
However, the conversation is not about that. It's about what is being forgiven. Is it intentional or is it unintentional? You see, the sacrificial system performed its intended function. It worked perfectly for what it was designed for. It was designed for the forgiveness of unintentional sin. Unfortunately, there's no remedy for intentional sin anywhere in the sacrificial system. Nowhere in the Tanakh will you find any absolution for intentional sin. This is why we, the children of Israel, require a redeemer. You see, when you and I have a sin to confess to Adonai, it's usually intentional sin we're confessing. Think about it. Most of the sin that we commit, it's not accidental. We sit, we contemplate it, we consider it, we weigh it, and then we go ahead and do it anyway because it pleases our flesh. The sacrificial system doesn't cover for that type of sin. There's no solution within the sacrificial system for that behavior. Yeshua is the only remedy. His crucifixion and resurrection is the only thing that's efficacious to be the ultimate sacrifice for all our sin. Thanks be to Adonai that he sent his son on our behalf, that through his amazing grace, we might find forgiveness when we confess our sins to him. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Good to see everyone. Thank you, Ephraim, for the teaching of uh, Yikra. And uh, the Haftor portion that follows the portion of uh, Yikra uh, begins for us in the book of Isaiah at chapter 43, uh, beginning at verse 21 is the first verse. Uh, and it's going to extend through chapter 43 into chapter 44 a little bit uh, as the Haftor portion for this. So let me... Let me draw together um, the connection of why um, have the sages selected this passage from Isaiah and how does it parallel uh, Vayikra. If you recall, um, Ephraim shared with you that in that first portion of Leviticus, there's much instruction given to the priests about five particular offerings for the temple service. Um, and beginning first with the, the, the whole burnt offering. And then this portion is going to make a reference to offerings, but not necessarily in the positive way. Uh, so the Hoftor message has a homiletic message that it parallels with the Torah portion. Um, now, as, as Ephraim uh, adequately kind of explained, when most of us, I came out of the standard Christian background as a young man, and I had received as my instruction of being a good believer of, uh, of Jesus that that whole system before, that whole religious system before, had essentially been done away with. That the, the coming of the Messiah was so great that uh, by faith and grace, it had effectively taken care of the law and the whole temple system and the priests and the sacrificial system. And all of those things were ancient, archaic things. Uh, they were just a shadow of things to come. But now we have the real thing, and it effectively just replaces all of it. This is classic what we call replacement theology. And Ephraim's key final point in the session is if you don't have this 
sacrificial system, if you don't follow the principles of what God gave in the instruction for how to have a have an altar, have a temple, a tabernacle system, that you have a priest system uh, to receive them, that you have a person bringing the gift, that it has to have a certain acceptability to the gift as specified by God, and then its proper presentation to the altar and being given as a gift uh, to the Lord, then you don't have the principles for a substitution system so that when the Messiah comes as the Lamb of God... If you don't have that sacrificial system and those principles in place, then what Yeshua comes and does is he's just an innocent man that was wrongly accused and killed. Lots of people in this world, uh, I hate to say it, but are wrongly accused, innocent, and they get killed, but that doesn't make them the Messiah. And that doesn't make them a sacrifice for our sins. But Yeshua, coming as the Lamb of God... And within the structure of the temple system, within the structure of the commandments that God established for a substitutionary system, he did fulfill the things. This is not a sacrifice brought by a man. This is a sacrifice brought by God. But before we men could understand how God could bring a sacrifice and do that for us, we had to learn how to bring sacrifices ourselves to God. It's a pretty simple instructional system, and the bottom line is is that we now have an understanding for substitution, propitiation, redemption, restoration, atonement. All of those things are born out of understanding the sacrificial system. Without it, those are just multi, multi-syllable words with no meaning. But they are words of great meaning to us and profundity in understanding the work that God has done for us, his love, his grace uh, for us. Now, uh, in this particular portion of the Haftor, what, what the prophet is doing, what God has instructed the prophet to do, is they're going to make mention of some sacrifices. And they're going to make mention of it in the way, Israel, you've forgotten the sacrifices. You're not coming and bringing me whole burnt offerings. You're not, you're not coming again and bringing the sacrifices. And what he says, the prophet is basically saying, because Israel, because you're not making this an important thing in your life in coming to do business with me, you're not bringing the sacrifices to me, as a result, your whole relationship is falling apart with me. And he begins in chapter 43, although it's not part of a Haftorah, I want to mention it because the basis of that argument is some very powerful statements God makes to Israel, to you and me, about his relationship. This is how God views his relationship with us. Let me start with chapter 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you through the rivers. They will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba, in your place. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west, and I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. 
Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, which whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, that's a very positive statement from God and his expression of love for Israel, the people of Israel. And by the way, that includes you and me. That's what God thinks about you and me. He, he looks at every one of us and he says, I've created you. I have formed you. By the way, you are descendants, many generations. You are the descendants of the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember what I did with them? It was not only for their benefit, but for your benefit. I have done all of these things. I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you into this land. I increased you. And by the way, look at the history. There's been many occasions when you were granted favor and others were not. That when it came to choices, God chose us and not others. And every one of us in our heart of hearts, when you stop and you reflect and think about what the Messiah has really done for us, who am I that the Messiah should have done that for me? Part of the spiritual humility, the depth of the relationship that we have with God, is a recognition about how powerful this relationship is. How much does God put into this? For us, for our benefit. He remains faithful. It says he neither slumbers nor sleeps. You and I go to sleep every night. He doesn't. He's still watching. He's still there. He's still paying attention to the relationship and to you and me. And he's ever promised to us to never leave us nor forsake us. And even though we go through difficult times uh, at, at different junctures of our life, he reassures us, do not be afraid. I'm with you. That, that I will hold you up with my right hand, meaning with the strength, with His strength, the strength of God. I will, I will use my strength for your benefit. Now that's the relationship that we have. That's the relationship that God has always wanted to have. And God, this God who has this relationship with us, and has been doing this from a long time ago, specified how He would like to have us come and worship Him. He said, if you want to come do business with me, I'm going to set up a table. We'll call it an altar. By the way, it's okay, and in fact, I encourage you. You bring a gift to the table. I'll bring some things to the table. You bring some things to the table. We're going to do this together. In the same way that we have a relationship with a good friend and families, many times we'll invite one another over to our homes. And in so doing, why... A, a, a good guest is always thinking, what can I bring? Oh, we're going to have a meal together. You're invited over for dinner. Oh, that's wonderful. Great. What can I bring? Can I bring the dessert? Can I bring, you know, a, a side dish? Can, you know, what, do I need to bring anything? You know, in other words, we're looking because part of that relationship, that friendship, that fellowship that we have, that table fellowship that we have, is, it can, can be based on gifts being brought. And, of course, a lot of gracious hosts will always say, don't bring anything. You don't need to bring anything. I've, I've got everything. Literally, the Lord really has that. He's already set that table. You don't need to bring a thing. I've already got it. But sometimes he allows us to participate with him. And he says, when you want to participate, this is what you need to bring. Don't bring something that's improper. Don't bring something that's counter to our relationship. Um, you know, bring things that are proper. And I'll, and I'll teach you. I'll show you how to do it. Because things that are brought to the table need to be done right. So 
Here we have this tabernacle system, this temple system. Here's the altar. The priesthood are established. You want to come worship the Lord? You come to Jerusalem. You present your sacrifice. Praise the God. We have a feast uh, to the Lord. The appointed times, we have big, big feasts to the Lord. We all worship the Lord and so forth. But as you know, as time goes on, we get a little lazy. We get a little slow not too attentive, you know, other things start to occupy our time and thinking. And uh, the energy that we first put into our relationship with the Lord, it begins to dwindle a little bit. And that's what this portion is going to begin to address, is that Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking to Israel and saying, Hey, uh, Israel, take a look at what's been going on here. And so beginning at verse 21, which is actually our portion, it begins with these words. Chapter 43, verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Okay, that's kind of a conclusion to the whole front part of the chapter. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob. But you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have, you have brought me no sweet cane with money, uh, bought me no sweet cane with money. Neither have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins and you wearied me with your iniquities. Let me go ahead and just draw a little spiritual equation here. If you're not climbing the mountain toward the Lord, then you're probably falling backwards off the mountain. If you're not walking with the Lord, then you're probably walking off the path somewhere else. If you're not pursuing the Lord, then you're probably pursuing other things. It's, it's pretty simple. You know, either the Lord is at the forefront of your heart and your life, and you pursuing Him and walking with Him and in the light, you're drifting off the path, you're sliding backwards, you're doing something else. And uh, what you're going to get ready to see here in this portion, and the reason why it ties in, is, listen, there are two ways, um, there, there are only two ways on this decision. You can either worship God as uh, in his tabernacle uh, with his priests according to the commandments that he's given for how to worship him. You can bring your sacrifices. You can be a part of this worship of God. Or the other choice is you're now moving toward idolatry. Because you see, in every person there is this spiritual vacuum. It needs to be filled by God. You have a spirit in you. And it needs to have the spirit of God dwell in that house with you. And if you don't, then you're going to find another God. You've got to find some kind of God that will fill that void, that fill that shape. Every man is spirit and soul and body. Now, the soul is your person, your identity, your intellect, and all that, your life, uh, your body. We understand that. That's things of the flesh. And then there's the spirit part of you. 
And this is the part where God comes in and is a part of your life. But if, you don't, if you're not having God come in and be that, then you're going to try to find another God to fill that space. Could be you. You might try to put, or Pharaoh, or something else of affection. You'll try to put some kind of God in there. And in the ancients, you know, they would make idols. They're trying to fill that void. They're trying to do that. Now, God recognized this. And that's the reason why he said, when you come to worship me, I have some specific things to do. That way the house will be set up correctly. Your spirit will be able to commune with me correctly. Everything's going to work good. But if you don't follow my instruction on how to worship me and, and, and so forth, you're going to go get another substitute God. You'll forget me and you'll go do something else. Because you're going to find this hole, and you're going to want to try to fill it. And you want to do it. The, uh, uh, I'm just going to use a real simple thing here to kind of illustrate this. Um, in our American society, and our society is no different from other ancient societies in this regard, what is the thing... That we as men, if we don't pursue the Lord, what is the thing that we as common men love to fill that thing with that really gets our spirit up and going, really and motivates us, encourages us, and, and we literally become absorbed in it and so forth. And I can tell you what, exactly what it is. It's professional sports. No different than the Roman gladiator system. And we call them fanatics. We call them short for fans. Actually, we're, we're using a, a spiritual model. And by the way, when you talk to a, a devoted fan of their particular team, man, if you want to see a living example of what faith looks like, just go up and talk to them about their team. Because you'll hear all the testimonies of faith, their, their confidence in their players and, and the great things. I mean, it's like right, reading the scripture where God is describing how he's going to ride on horse from heaven and with blazing fire. I mean, that, that's the way they picture their heroes in their teams. Okay? And, and I'm, by the way, I'm not saying you can't have fun with, with professional sports or team sports. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm trying to say is if you want to see an illustration of how powerful that part of your spiritual life is, just take a look at some people that believe in their particular athletic team. You know, if you had Christians and believers of God acting in, in that same way, you'd call them extremists. Religious right-wing extremists. But when we see them doing it for basketball, football, hockey, and so forth, why well, we just call them fans for fanatics. And we think it's funny and it's fun and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's what the rest of this uh, portion goes into. Is the prophet says, okay, if you don't want to bring sacrifices... If you don't want to worship me in the way that I have specified, then let me tell you what, you what is in front of you. Let me tell you what your life is about. And he proceeds to go down here. And uh, let me read to you now from um, uh, chapter 43. Or, excuse me. Let me get into uh, chapter uh, 44 uh, where he begins to explain verse 9. 
And let me read there for you. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will, will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all of his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves. Let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water, becomes weary. And another shapes wood. And he extends a measuring line, and he outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes, and outlines it with a compass, and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. So he cuts cedar for himself, and takes a cypress, or an oak, and he raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for the man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself. He also makes a fire to bake the bread. He also makes a god and worships it. And he makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Half he eats his meat and he roasts a roast and is satisfied. And he also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of him... He makes into a god his graven image. He falls down before it, worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for thou art my God. I want you to stop and think about it. Here's basically what it says. This is what idolatry is. Idolatry is sheer, futile nonsense. There, There is no idolatrous God. I mean, it's a, it's a completely imaginary thing. But it's going to be formed and fashioned by the efforts of the man who later is going to fall down and worship it. And he says, first, you've got to have a guy who's going to make a cutting tool. So you've got to have a guy with big, strong arms and in the forge, and he's, he's going to heat the metal, and he's going to pound it out with a hammer, and he's going to make an axe. He's going to make a cutting tool. Then that guy's going to take that cutting tool, and he's going to go out into the forest, and he's going to find the right kind of wood, oak tree, cypress, cedar, something like that. He's going to cut it down, and then he's going to have to chip away at this thing and carve away, plane it down, smooth it, measure it all out, form it into the image of something that he's going to make to be called a god. Now, all the chips, all of the other pieces that he cleaned away, that's what he's going to use in his fire, and he's going to cook his supper on there, bake his bread, roast his meat, so forth, sit back and say, oh, we've had a great supper, we've had a great meal here, and then that that piece of the wood that he didn't burn, the one that set up as an image, then he's going to bow down to it and he says, this is my God. You know, just the way he lays the argument out, he's basically saying how ludicrous it is to be an idolater. Why was the guy motivated to begin with to make a cutting tool? Or to take a cutting tool and, and, and make something that he would set up in his house? Why? Why was he motivated to do that? Because he wasn't following the way God had specified to worship him. And he has to come up with a new substitute way. Oh, I don't want to do it the way God said, you know, where you go to Jerusalem and go to the temple and present it to the priest. And, and I, I don't want to do that. I, I, I want to do something else. I want to do something different. 
Let me give you a modern-day comparison. We have people who believe in the Messiah, who know all the story about the Messiah, Yeshua coming. Uh, but I don't, want to do, I don't want to do that stuff that they did in Israel. I don't want to do it the way the Messiah did it with his brethren and so forth. For example, that Passover thing, let's not do that. Let's take some of the parts of the Passover thing. You know, we'll, we'll turn it around and, and we'll make it so that uh, uh, we, we'll call it Easter. And, and uh, we'll have, by the way, I think for the kids, I think we ought to get some chocolate bunnies into this thing. Okay, I, I know that wasn't specified at all before, but we'll put that in there because I think that would be better. And that'd be, and I, I know, let's have eggs and we'll color them. And for fun for the kids, we'll have an Easter egg hunt. And we'll have little chocolate bunnies that you can eat. And, and we'll all call it the resurrection. Okay? And uh, other, we'll make some other things into it and so forth. Because you see, I got this hole in me. Because I'm not keeping Passover and not keeping the Feast of Redemption the Lord gave, I've got to come up with a substitute for that. I've got to find some other way. Because I don't want to do that, which is what the Messiah did with his disciples. No, no, no. See, we're above that. We're beyond that. And it never stops there. It just keeps going. And... Even in the Christian faith, we've seen this. Well, Israel was already doing this before, only they were involved with Sumerian gods and other gods of other nations, and they were leaving the commandments of the Lord, and Isaiah is talking to them about the dumb things that Israel does when they don't want to follow the Lord. And in Isaiah's day, there was a temple, but the people stopped coming. They stopped coming to worship the Lord. And uh, so the priests weren't that active, so they went and did other things. And next thing you know, I, it's turned into something else. And, and um, the whole thing begins to fall apart. We don't see the pictures. We don't learn the lessons correctly anymore. Um, and it doesn't get passed down to the next generation, you know, what we had, the instruction we had received to begin with. And, and then it evolves even worse. And, and the next thing you know, it's all confusing. And it's just, it's just religion. And there's no, quote, value or substance. And then you have the mockers and scorners saying, like, what are, you, what are you people doing? It's just all archaic stuff. It's just nonsensical stuff. You just go through the motions of doing this stuff. What, of what benefit is it? And, and it all gets confusing. And yet at the same time, they recognize the futility of what they're doing. Like, with some Christians I have posed to them for years, they've been going to church, years they've been doing these kinds of things. And they said, well, let me ask you something. I said, when a day of trouble comes to your life, can you call upon the Lord and the Lord answer you in the day of your trouble? Or is that case sarah, sarah? And I think a lot of Christians have the religion of fate. Well, whatever. Whatever happens, I guess that was God's will. And there, what happened to the relationship? What, what happened to the relationship where the God says, I formed you. I've been, I've been knowing about you from before the foundations of the world. I've been planning on you being part of my kingdom. I called you. I chose you. I love you. I will lay down my life for you. What, what happened to all that relationship? Turns out in real practice, 
since we don't worship the Lord the way the Lord called for us to worship him, why we come up with our substitutes and all of a sudden we find they're kind of shallow, not very satisfying. I don't know about you, but I can only take so much chocolate anyways. And um, I've never seen anybody spiritually satisfied by eating a chocolate bunny. I'm being honest. I've I've never seen anybody give a testimony that they uh, were spiritually uplifted, their souls were edified by Eve. And I'm talking about chocolate-holic women who love chocolate. Even they didn't testify to Easter Bunny chocolate things as doing the job. So why are we doing it? That's as silly, that's as futile as some guy carving out some cedar log, making the image of a man, calling it a god, and using the wood chips, you know, to heat his heat his supper with. It's about as dumb as that. That's what this Haftor portion is about. It's it's kind of reverse psychology to try to get us to understand that when God specified certain commandments with how you come to my table, how you worship me, the gifts that you bring, that these are holy. This table is holy. The service of the priests is righteous and true. And that we should defer to it. We should honor it. We should respect it. And we certainly should use it. I'll give you another example of how things have drifted off. In one of the instructions that the law gives to us about coming to the altar properly, one of the things the Lord says, this is so important to me about our relationship, about you coming to the altar properly, that if you have ought with your brother, you leave your gift at the base of the altar, you go back and get that other issue resolved And then you come back and make your gift to the Lord. Because I don't even want you making your gift to the Lord. I want your heart to be completely clean and pure when you come to the table to worship me so that we can really have a relationship. I don't want any objection to it uh, because you have ought with your brother. But what do most believers do? They have ought with their brother... And they think they can go ahead and come to the Lord and make their gift with outstanding issues of conflict with the brethren. And although the Lord has specifically requested, don't do that until that issue is cleared up, they don't focus on clearing up the issues and having peace in their life. Instead, they tolerate the conflicts and so forth, and then they go through the religious exercise and think they're making their gift and so forth. And if you don't do it the way the Lord has specified, you're morphing and, and, and um, mutating Your spiritual relationship into something else, and it's not going to be satisfying, and your faith is not going to work. And sometimes the Lord flat out says, I will not listen to you. By the way, sin does block and does separate you from the Lord in your relationship. And if you're not coming sincerely the way I have specified come before me, then you're putting obstacles and stumbling blocks in our relationship, and, and it's not going to work. The, the, the meeting point, 
The point where we get it together with God is when we come to that same table. And you bring your gift. It's given to the Lord. It's put up on the table for the two of you to enjoy with the Lord. And to do business with God. But as as Ephraim was mentioning before, if you decide that you're going to cast off the entire sacrificial system, if you're not going to honor the altar system, if you're not going to honor God's instructions on how you implement, how you maintain the relationship with God, then you're going to get something less than satisfactory results out of your relationship with the Lord. Now, thank goodness that the Messiah has come and done a tremendous work of redemption for us. Thank goodness that he's come and built the tabernacle of the living God inside of us. And by the way, in us is an altar. And by the way, he is the great high priest, and we can go right there. We don't have to go to Jerusalem. But you see, the principles of what we learned from the tabernacle, from the law, and that was done in the temple service in Jerusalem, in the temple, those are the same principles that apply to this altar and what's going on here. And if you're standing up and denying the principles for the tabernacle and for the temple system, you're denying the very principles of what works in here. And by the way, you do not have the authority from God. You are not the new priest who can go through and make all the changes in the temple system in here. Now, maybe some Catholics think they are, but I have news for them. They don't. The God I serve, in Jeremiah 33, said, there will be no lack for a man to sit on the throne of your throne, David. And he was referring to the Messiah. The son of David would be the one who would sit on that throne forever. And the very next verse says, And there will be no lack for Levite priests to serve before him daily. He did not authorize another priesthood that would come and serve him. It's the same one that God started with Moses and Aaron, and the same one that was with the tabernacle and with the temple in Jerusalem. It's the same one the Messiah honors, and it's the same one that will be in the millennial kingdom. Now, that's the way he set it up. We either are going to follow that and obey that, or we're going to be doing something else, and we're not going to get the same results that we're looking for in our personal spiritual walk with the Lord. Is it essential for you to learn to keep the commandments of the Lord, including those in the book of Leviticus, for you to maintain your relationship with the Messiah? The answer is yes. It is essential. And those who would teach you and tell you otherwise are in error. And they do not have the authority to usurp what the Messiah has said or usurp what Moses said, and least of which, they do not have the authority to change what God said. Just because they quit doing that and had to come up with a new way to do things, a new way to worship God. I am here to say that if you don't follow the ways that God has specified, you're no different than this guy described in Isaiah chapter 44, 
You're just out there whittling on wood, making a god for yourself, and eating, you know, your your nice feast dinner off of the chips and the, the carvings off of the silly thing. You might as well go ahead and throw the idol in there and go ahead and cook your meat. Because that's all the good it is. And then you got nothing. Uh, there was a very famous uh, um, Christian man who said, there's a God-shaped vacuum in every man, and every man is trying to find something to fill it with. Those who fill it with God, the one true God, will be satisfied. Those that are looking for other things will be sorely disappointed. It, it won't fill the vacuum. It won't fill the God-shaped vacuum. And it's certainly true of the worship of God. You follow the way God has specified, it'll be satisfying. Don't follow this way. You're going to find, try to find substitutes, all kinds of crazy things. I mean, all the way to the level of chocolate Easter bunnies. And it will not be satisfying to replace the feast of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Uh, your instruction. Thank you for your Haftorah portions. Thank you for the prophet Isaiah. And we see the lessons, Lord, of the history of Israel, of the mistakes they've made before in not following your commandments. I pray, Lord, today, we who are brethren who know you and want to follow after you, let us not make the mistakes of the past. Let us hold to your instruction and hold to your word. And if we don't quite understand it, Lord, teach us and help us to understand it correctly so that we can apply all of your truths and principles correctly so that our worship and our relationship with you would be one that is satisfying, that we can hear your voice speaking directly to you when you say that you choose us and you love us and that you're our God and our Savior. And we thank you for that salvation, and we thank you for who you are to us. In Yeshua's name, amen. Shabbat Shalom. If you would please turn in your Bibles now uh, to the book of First Timothy. Hold your finger at chapter 5, where our Brit Hadashah uh, portion will begin. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everything that you're doing in our lives, for everything uh, that is going on. Father, I pray that we now take this time and this opportunity on this Sabbath to focus on your word, your teaching, your instruction. And we thank you, Lord, once again, that we can dig into these passages of the New Testament and that you can minister to, our, uh, to us, strengthen us as we follow along with the Torah cycle and follow along with your word uh, as it is living and alive and powerful. So, Father, we thank you for all of this teaching, all of this instruction, and for your word once again. We thank you for all of these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Vayikra, which is the very first portion of Leviticus, the Hebrew book called Vayikra, um, which is now that we have uh, completed the book of Exodus, the construction of the tabernacle and all those things, we now have the uh, instruction coming to Moses from the Lord, shifting now to the giving of sacrifices and the operation of the tabernacle. It does not do that for the entire book of Leviticus. And what it does is the first part, it does focus on the offerings and the types of sacrifices that were given to the Lord at the tabernacle and through the altar. 
But the entire book as a whole is for all people to uh, follow. There's many more commandments in the book of Leviticus for us to learn to walk uprightly before the Lord in all of these instructions. And so one of the things just right off the bat when it comes to the book of Leviticus is to not consider the book of Leviticus to be something that is old, archaic, ancient, and that we don't need to know any of these things anymore. Even though we don't have an altar and an operating priesthood and an operating temple in the world today, it does not mean that any of these instructions are, uh, are not applicable for us to either learn learn from or learn the principles of even in modern times. This book of Leviticus, uh, the the very first verse of Leviticus, uh, talks about how when someone wants to bring an offering before the Lord, that they were to bring an offering of themselves before the Lord. Right off the bat, one of the first things to learn from this book as we enter into these passages, talking about the book of Leviticus, and of course tying them in to the New Testament readings, is that we are to understand what all of this is about giving a gift to the Lord for desiring to give to the Lord as in a way that he has prescribed for us to give to him because we love God, because we're in covenant with the Lord and because he's made a way for us to worship him with the giving of gifts and offerings. That's the purpose of the offerings. Many people are, have the misconception that all the offerings, all they had to do was payment for sin. That all you ever did was you went and you killed a lamb, you committed a sin, you killed a lamb, and that's now you're forgiven for your sin. That is a complete oversimplification of the giving of the offerings of the tabernacle of the altar to the Lord. It was when somebody wanted to give of themselves. In fact, one of the things, the first passage here that I want to tie into is this, that when somebody wanted to give an offering, they were to give an offering of themselves. They were offering themselves before the Lord. It's not just something that you had lying around like a lamb or some grain, some flour, a bottle of wine. And you went to give that to the Lord because you just had it lying around. And you're like, ah, that's nice. Maybe I'll give that to the Lord. No, every offering was to be an offering that you were giving from your inwardmost being. From almost like you were giving a part of yourself to the Lord. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that we're, you know, chopping off parts of our body and giving that to the Lord. But when it comes to the whole idea of giving an offering or making a sacrifice before the Lord, you are serving him. It is a sacrifice. It's something that had value to you or a part of you that was worth something is what you give to the Lord. And so in the times in which people had flocks for their livelihood, the giving of a lamb or a goat or a bull was something that could be given and offered up to the Lord on the altar of God. And so whenever you were giving this offering, there was a connection that you are to make with that animal that was being given. And what you were meant to do was you were supposed to lay your hands upon the animal that you were giving before the Lord. This establishes a connection, a physical connection between you and that animal. There's actually, uh, there's greater spiritual implications of when you take your hand and you lay it upon something. Now, it's a misconception that people think that whenever you laid your hands upon a sacrifice, that what you were doing was you were laying your sins upon that animal. 
you were that, that you were laying the burdens of your sin upon the animal, and then that bur- that animal was then killed and sacrificed, and hence causing your sin to become no more because you took the sin from your body, you laid it on this innocent animal, and then it was killed so that your sin vanishes or disappears or goes up in smoke. That is not what the purpose of the connection, of the physical connection between a person and the animal was. Because even on certain sacrifices that were not associated with sin, which if you study this Torah portion, you'll learn that there's seven types of, of sacrifices that are um, that only two of them have to do with sin. The other ones have to do with you loving the Lord and wanting to give a gift to him. So there are some sacrifices that had nothing to do with sin that you still laid your hands upon. So it's not that your sin is, is, is transferring from your hand, down your arm, through your hand, into, onto the animal so it could be then sacrificed. No, it was that you were giving a part of yourself, creating that physical connection between you and that thing being offering, that it was then offered as a part of you. That's another, once again, this is this misconception, this connection that is made when hands form and con- come in contact with another animal or another person. This I've tied into my uh, 21 Acts of Covenant teaching as well, that the connection of what you put your hand and what you connect with and what you touch with your hands establishes a spiritual connection beyond a physical one. That when you shake hands with somebody, you're beginning a covenant relationship with that person because of that physical connection that you make with them. Hence, that brings us here to our first passage for the day in 1 Timothy chapter 5. When it's talking about giving honor to elders, obviously Timothy is receiving this instruction uh, from Paul and that he is t- teaching Timothy things that you need to watch out for as you're an overseer or an elder and as you go to minister. These are things you need to pay attention to, that you need to watch out for. This is where in this passage, starting at verse 17, it talks about how when elders, they, they rule over the people, they are counted worthy of double honor and that you shall not muzzle out the ox that treads out the grain and a laborer is worth his wages and making sure that people are taken care of who fill in as the office of elder. It talks about how that you're not to um, listen to any uh, any uh, accusation of an elder without two or three witnesses. And there's some practical instruction about teaching somebody how to be an elder and how to rule in a community. There's a very curious passage here, verse, I should say, at verse 22 of 1 Timothy 5, where it says this, Do not lay your hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Very fascinating passage of scripture here that ties in, and this, this word of warning that ties, of course, directly into this idea of the giving of the offerings to the Lord. Do not lay your hands on anyone hastily. Nor, or you will share in their sins. This goes back to that spiritual slash physical connection that happens when you make physical contact with somebody. It's not just a physical connection of shaking someone's hand or laying your hand upon something. But there's, but the scripture and there's an understanding that there's something more spiritual going on here. How is it that you just touch somebody who might be a sinner that you then partake in their sin? Well, you might not know what sin they have. You might not know what uncleanness is upon them from their sin. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about um, leprosy. We're going to talk about um, you know, what it means to actually have your sin manifest into a 
physical resemblance or a physical evidence on your skin that shows that somebody is sinning. Those ones are obvious. You're like, oh, that, the, the, somebody that looks kind of gross. You don't want to touch that. And it's like you, you instantly feel like if you touch that, you'll become unclean. And that's and then I, I might some of that sin might get on me if that's a leprosy that's caused by sin. With other people, you might not see that leprosy. You might not, might not be so obvious what somebody might be struggling with or have with the kind of sin that's in their lives. And so this counsel that's going to Timothy here is this. Do not hastily go lay hands on somebody. Perhaps that you have you take some uh, um, some precaution when it comes to you going and if you're going to go pray for somebody and if you're going to go minister to somebody that you might need to use some sound judgment, some wise discernment to before you decide that you're going to lay hands on somebody, you're going to pray for them or you're going to encourage them or minister to them. With all of that said, what can we take from this? It's very important what you actually physically make contact with. It's very important. It's something that we should actually realize the importance or the the uh, significance of it. Because if you're thinking about going back again to the giving of an offering, this would have been one of the most important or spiritual moments of your life if you were ever had the opportunity to take an animal and go give an offering before the Lord. You're talking about, you know, we could think about in modern times we have, uh, you know, you pass the plate and you, you, you give a donation, a financial offering before the Lord. Or perhaps you give a worship or a praise offering before the Lord. And we do this all the time in our congregations, in our fellowships and things like that. And we somehow just we don't put a lot of weight in the, or stock in the fact that we're truly giving a sacrifice to the Lord in the only way that we can appropriately without an altar. But if there was an operating altar, if there was that system by which you can give to the Lord that way, this would have been an incredibly spiritual experience. And you would follow the procedure accordingly and you'd work with the priest and make sure you did all of this right and appropriately and according to the Lord. You would prepare your heart before you would ever do do any of these things. And so on that same token, if you're going through that process and that procedure, when it came time to you to put your hands upon that animal... The, 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 because of uh, the procedure and the um, order of things when it came to giving, giving a sacrifice before the Lord, that would have been a very poignant moment. That you would, it, would not, uh, it, it would not befall you that, that you're um, doing something extremely significant at this time when you're we're instructed to by the priest to lay your hands upon that animal. Very important, very significant. And so we need to sort of understand that in our day-to-day lives. You can look down at your hands and say, you know, it's like what I touch, what I do is so much more significant than just the, the physical act of it, but that there is sometimes spiritual implications as well. And that's what we learn from the altar service, from the giving of these offerings and these sacrifices. So as we um, go through... Um, these passages here in the New Testament, we have several other ones that tie directly into our Torah portion. If you would now turn to Romans chapter 8. It seems to me that when uh, when I'm going through and trying to come up with messages and teachings, man, Romans chapter 8 usually seems to come up quite often. It's one pro- Quite possibly one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. And so, but there, there's another... Um, Another instance in which what is being spoken here by Paul in the book of Romans does uh, 
impact or does have um, a connection to the sacrifices that are given to us in the book of Leviticus. As I said before, I've been bringing out the fact that there's a connection between what is spiritual and what is physical. You cannot just physically go through the act of giving an offering to the Lord if you have not spiritually weighed the brevity of you giving a gift to the Lord. You wouldn't just go and go through the act without thinking about it or or trying to find significance in it. No, what would happen first is you would have a stirring in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit that you would say, I want to give a gift to the Lord. And then the physical act will follow. And that's going to be a theme here for the rest of our teaching is this whole idea of remembering spiritually what's going on and not just focusing on the physical act of making a sacrifice. Let me read here now Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ, Yeshua, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life is Christ, Yeshua, has made me free with the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of his sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to their flesh set their mind on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you who are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of God, he is not his. And if Christ is uh, is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Messiah from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit, who dwells in you. This is this fascinating passage of scripture talking about the contrast between the spirit and the flesh for us to not be physically minded, carnally minded, but spiritually minded on the Lord. This is exactly the sort of um, balance and that you one had to weigh when one was giving an offering before the Lord. We could look at the sacrifices and, and what was given at the, in the altar and that at the tabernacle. And that um, one would give this offering, make this sacrifice, kill this animal, and go to give to the Lord. And we might, like once, as I said before, we might think just physically, I'm doing this act because I need to. Because I sinned and so therefore I have to give this sacrifice or this offering. Or everybody else is doing it, I'm going to give an offering before the Lord as well. That's, carnal, that's the carnal mind. That's the physical mind. That's the fleshly mind that just says, hey, I just got to do this and go through the act and go through the motions. But if the Spirit of God is actually inside of us in the process of that giving, then we are giving a righteous and right and appropriate offering before the Lord. Is God going to regard our offering, the God of heaven and earth, 
God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that knows our thoughts, knows thoughts and intents of the heart, knows, you know, what we think, what we feel, all of those things. If you're just going to go through the motions and not really give weight and brevity to the fact that you're giving an offering before the Lord, is that going to be an acceptable offering before the Lord? Of course not. You could go through the act, but it it would count as nothing in the eyes of the Lord if you're not understanding the weight of it. The weight and, and, and the significance of you giving a gift to the creator of heaven and earth. That is what our focus needs to be. And so, again, he ties, of course, directly the sacrifice of Yeshua to the giving of a sacrifice or an offering in the tabernacle or the temple is that he came and he was the the propitiation, the payment for our sins, and he came in the form of sinful flesh so that then it could be fulfilled, the idea of when you go to make a sacrifice before the Lord, when you have sinned before the Lord and you have sinned um, willfully and defiantly, what you actually deserve is you deserve death, you deserve punishment, and Yeshua gave us that fulfillment and that picture of what a sacrifice truly should be. I said before that when you you made that connection with the animal that was being offered, that you weren't laying your sins upon it. But what you were to realize is the fact that what is about to be killed is is an innocent animal, and that for your sin, your mistake, actually you should be receiving punishment, not the innocent animal. And whenever you gave a sin offering, that is something that would weigh heavily upon you. You you couldn't help but think of it that way. The fact that, you know, it's like I committed a sin and I'm, I'm, I, I deserve to be punished for that. And so then the sacrifice is now a substitution for my sin. This the, the, the temple service and all of the giving of the offerings given to us in Leviticus gives us the precedent for which God accepts a substitute for our sins and our mistakes and what our punishment should be. And without that system in place, without that precedent, we could not have the sacrifice of Messiah. I like to say and I, I like to think that the sacrifice of the Messiah is um, is a perfect example of and, and a fulfillment, not to do away with, but a fulfillment to make perfect and fill up full of meaning all the different sacrifices of the altar. In fact, in the course of his sacrifice, when he came before the priest, the high priest, that he went through all of the proper channels, was observed by a priest, and that through the entire, all the stages of the cross, and all the way up through the crucifixion, he went through the process and procedure that a lamb would go through if it was going to be offered before the Lord as well. The sacrificial system and the way the priests and the the offerings were given and the way that that altar and tabernacle operated were the same procedures that made the sacrifice of Yeshua to be an acceptable offering before the Lord. And that he gives this fulfillment of what those offerings truly are to mean. And here, that, that's not lost on me when I read these words and see that it's the Messiah himself, the Son of God, that came in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet, and, and went through the process of being sacrificed, that we ourselves, spiritually, that's what's happening with us every time that we sin. Is that we, to get back in right standing before the Lord, we have to go through the right proper and procedures, present ourselves to be clean, right, appropriate, 
And that right up to that point when it's time to actually make a cut and give a life for the payment of that sin, then somebody stops us and says, your payment has already been made. See, that's what we're supposed to understand when we sin. And that's what Yeshua has done for us. That we understand the process, the procedure of what we should have to go through, but right up to the point in which punishment would come, somebody says, you know what, your check's been covered. Yeah, you, you do not have to, 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 to give of yourself and cause harm to yourself to make this payment. Instead, there's a substitute that has been made and can be made on your behalf. And what an amazing blessing that is. Here's the thing about all of the, once again, those physical sacrifices that all take place or took place is that, yeah, there, there's the physical act of doing it. But before you ever got to that point, spiritually in your mind, you have to make sure that you have done the right and appropriate things before you even get to that point. I like to look at the offerings in, in this way, that Giving the offering to God puts us back into right standing with the Lord. It allows for us to enter into the presence of the Lord. Whenever that offering was brought, it went to the brazen altar. You were never able to go all the way into the sanctuary, the Holy of Holies and the holy place. That's where the presence of God dwells. But for you to get even that close to it, you had to bring something. You had to bring an offering. One could sit in the camp, if you're, if you're picturing the, the, the camp of the children of Israel... One could sit in the camp of the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and there the tabernacle gets erected, and then suddenly it's, uh, you know, that's where offerings are being given, and we see the presence of the Lord, we see a pillar of cloud, we still see a pillar of fire, and there's the Lord in the camp. One could sit in their tent and say, you know what, uh, I'm good, you know, I don't need to go into, I, need, I don't need to get any closer to the Lord, but then the thing is this, is that the person who truly has a heart after God? Or would somebody who truly is zealous for their God to worship the Lord, wouldn't they want to get closer to the Lord? Well, maybe they would. So you know what? I'm going to leave my tent and I'm going to go to get closer to the Lord. But then the priest would stop you and say, okay, you can't go any further. Here's the outer court. You can't enter in even into the outer court unless you have business with the Lord. And it's like, well, no, I desire to be closer to the Lord, to be in the presence of God. So you know what you could do? Bring an offering. Bring a peace offering, bring a love offering, bring, bring something that you want to give to the Lord. And in the process of doing that, you were able to get even closer to him. That's what the offerings gave you an opportunity to do, to get closer to the Lord. But you know what you had to do if you sinned? If you made a mistake, if you wronged one of your brethren, it was not appropriate for you to go into the presence of the Lord unless that sin gets taken care of, unless it gets dealt with. And it would be very wise for you to understand, you know what, you're not allowed to go and give a peace offering to the Lord, a thanksgiving offering, if you still have an open issue with you and your brother. Or if you have not yet given that sin offering or a trespass offering to the Lord so that you can enter back into that presence, and then you can then consider giving that peace offering or that love offering to the Lord again. You have to deal with the sin before you're allowed to enter back into the presence of God. That's what the sin sacrifices truly were for. It was well understood that if you were going to give an offering before the Lord, you were to have made restitution with your brother who you wronged before you even get to that point. Forgiveness did not come because that offering was given to the Lord. Forgiveness came is because the person you wronged forgave you. That's how you receive forgiveness. 
And so in the course of the giving of these sacrifices, that is something we need to understand from the very beginning that we have to make restitution with our brother who we wronged before we bring that offering. Here's the other thing we have to know about all those sin offerings. These offerings were for unintentional sin. If you unintentionally sinned against your brother, if you did not mean to do harm, you did not mean to do wrong, but hence you still did, that's what you were to bring an offering for. There was no sin for willful, or there was no payment or sacrifice for willful defiant sin. It just didn't exist. You can read all the Torah all you want and you will not find it. Because what you will find, it says somebody who sins defiantly and willfully, they deserve death. There's no payment. There's no sacrifice. You're not getting back in right standing with the Lord. You go to the edge of the city and you die. <laughs> okay. Uh, so what do we do about that? <laughs> because we all have willfully defiantly sinned. We have. We've all made that mistake. We've all have allowed uh, selfishness or greed to fill our hearts. And, you know, it's like we know something is wrong. We know we shouldn't do it. Yeah, we do it anyways. Willfully, defiantly. There's no payment, no sacrifice, no bull, no goat, no turtle dove that you can offer that fixes that sin. Except for the sacrifice of Messiah. That is what the Messiah did by him actually dying of himself, not giving an, uh, sacrificing an animal on your behalf, but for him to actually die as a substitution for our sins is that payment for willful divine sin because we all, die, we all deserve death for that sin. With that as a prerequisite and a pref, uh, a um, uh, j- j- just to get all that out of the way first, now let us turn to another passage here in the New Testament. Let us now turn to Hebrews chapter 10. This is traditional reading for this uh, Torah portion, specifically talking about animal sacrifices and the offerings. And, and the, the book of Hebrews uh, describes this very interesting comparison between the Levitical priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple, all the different types of sacrifices, and what Yeshua is to us. It brings out the great point of the fact that Yeshua is our high priest. Yes, there was a high priest in the tabernacle and the temple, and he did all these things, but Yeshua is our high priest. Some of those things are brought out here in the book of Hebrews. And here... We have the passage in Hebrews chapter 10 that is specifically talking about these sacrifices and about what sin they cover or don't cover. Now, keep in mind what I just said previously about no sin or no sacrifice being a payment for willful, defiant sin. Keep that in mind as we now read this passage. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. 
previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings, and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which you offered, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. But that we, but that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Yeshua the Messiah once and for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Here's, it's making this distinction by the fact that Yeshua's single sacrifice changed something, made something perfect. And that's exactly what I agree 100% that Yeshua's sacrifice made something perfect. It made perfect the substitutionary system in the law that we now have a payment for something we didn't previously have a payment for. Willful, defiant sin. Those that we're, that, that we're bringing before the Lord. I mean, it's all like anything that we could bring, we still were unclean in our sin by the fact that everyone willfully, defiantly sins and doesn't die immediately because of it. We, none of us could be pure in the course of bringing an offering before the Lord. We all had some, something else going on, even though we, did, we were following the law with all of our hearts to give these sacrifices and these offerings. But Yeshua's sacrifice makes everything perfect by the fact that we now have a payment for the thing that we needed the most. And that it has purified those and that they are now sanctified who can now come before the Lord and who can now worship him rightly and appropriately. It's talking about how the priests, you know, they, they gave these offerings and these daily sacrifices constantly. It's like, but they couldn't take away sins. You're right. They did not take away the sins. Even the sin sacrifices didn't take away the sins. And as I said, I said before, forgiveness came from the person you wronged, not from the uh, not from the giving of the sacrifice. And so the, this whole idea of that saying that, yeah, you, we can do these offerings. These offerings were given, but it didn't take away sins. Yeah, that, that's actually what was understood. Because as I said before, there was many of these offerings that were given that you gave this gift to the Lord because you loved the Lord. If one simply thinks that only the offerings, all they ever had to do with was for payment for sin, then you are seriously missing the purpose of the altar and the temple service. You're missing the point because it wasn't all about, all about sins. If you did look at it as being all about sins, well, then you would know, well, man, everybody has sinned and there's no payment. And there's no way to pay for it. The blood of bulls and goats never took away sins. Nope, never did. It really didn't. But what it did is it was the payment that you gave. It was the, it was the offering of yourself that you gave because your heart desired to be back into the presence of God. That's what it was for. That's why you gave the offering, was to enter back into the presence of God. If you go ahead a couple of cha uh, chapters in the book of Hebrews, also to chapter 13, beginning at verse 10, it says this. We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
For the bodies of those animals whose blood was brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Yeshua also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to him, but do not forget to do good and to share. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. This is bringing out the point and the understanding that because we now follow Yeshua and his example, we go and see the sacrifice that he made being taken outside of the camp because this was actually a passage to me that encourages those that are now no longer in Jerusalem, now no longer able to go to the altar that is not in place, it's been torn down many, many years ago, and we now have a way to still give an offering to the Lord with the example that Yeshua gave. Though we are outside the camp, though Yeshua's sacrifice was outside the camp, it still was an acceptable sacrifice before the Lord. And in the same way that though we find ourselves exiled into the nations, we still can give an offering to the Lord, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. That's the type of offering that we give today. That through our hearts, we, we can sing praises to him. We can pray before him. We can exalt his name and honor him in everything that we say and, and, and do. And that's the offering that we are able to give today in the absence of an altar. Now, some, some people might say that Yeshua's sacrifice was the final, uh, was the final sacrifice to where now that the temple has been done away with, that now there's no plan or purpose for that offering or those, those offerings to be given in any way, shape, or form. For there to no longer ever need to be an altar and never to make sacrifice before the Lord. That is never what is being addressed here in the book of Hebrews or in anywhere else when you're talking about simply the sin offerings of the tabernacle. Because there still were offerings that were done that was you were to give to the Lord because you loved the Lord. If there was ever to be an altar that was going to be set up again, we should still have the, pers- be, have the heart to be the one that goes to enter into the presence of God, to be with the presence of God, and to bring an offering to him. And not be the person that's sitting in the camp and saying, oh, all of that, eh, that that's not for me. I don't need to get any closer to the presence of God. No, the the whole purpose of all of these things, because Yeshua's payment, his sacrifice was the payment for willful defiant sin, doesn't mean that he did away with the way that we give to the Lord because we love the Lord. A peace offering to give to the Lord is not done away with because a a certain type of sin now has a payment for it. It doesn't work that way. What's being addressed specifically here is now Yeshua's sacrifice is that payment for willful defiant sin. And even in the absence of an altar, we can still give praises and sacrifices and offerings to him in other ways. We should look for all the ways it is possible to give an offering before the Lord. All of them. If we had an altar and can offer something to the Lord in that way physically, we should. We should have a heart's desire to do that and spiritually inclined to give that way. If we can't do that, then we should give praises and sing praises and worship the Lord in that way. We should find every possible way it is to give to God. We should find that way and we should do it if we have a heart and we love him and we worship 
him. One last thing that I want to uh, mention. If we go to Colossians, the book of Colossians in chapter 2 at verse 13. It says this. And you being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us and which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing... um, triumphing over them in it. Some might say that Yeshua and his sacrifice, that he nailed the Torah and the law to the cross. That is, I believe, a misappropriation or or you're misspeaking if you say that. What it says here is he nailed our trespass to the cross. Our trespass, our sin, the thing that we did that we shouldn't have done, That's what was nailed to the cross. That was what was taken away from us, was the sin. As I said before in Hebrews, the blood of bulls and goats didn't take away any sin. Especially willful defiant sin. But Yeshua's sacrifice did, because it took away the trespass and the sin that we have committed. That's what was nailed to the cross. Not the law, not the commandments, not the Ten Commandments, not the uh, uh, idea of giving an offering before the Lord because you love him, not the kosher laws, not the holiness laws in the midst of the book of Leviticus. Those were not nailed to the cross, so we don't have to deal with them anymore. Our trespass and the, the, the sin that infests our lives, that's what was taken and put upon the cross. That is what I would like that we need to focus on for anyone who might come along and say... That the law is done away with, that the sacrifices are done away with, that the commandments are done away with. Believe you me, Yeshua did not come to take away the thing that he was the author of, that he was the the law giver. And he didn't come to take away and do away with the thing that made him the acceptable Lamb of God's sacrifice for our sins. He did not come to do away with those things, but he came to fulfill those things. And fulfill his sacrifice did for our willful defiance sin. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for today. We thank you for this teaching, this instruction. Father, we thank you for the word of God, the encouragement that it can be, the, the teaching and the knowledge that it gives to us. Father, we love you and we thank you, Lord, for choosing us from among all peoples, for teaching us these things, for encouraging us with your word and your instruction. As we study it every single week, as the people uh, dig into your word, Father, not just every week, but I pray that we would be opening the scripture every day and letting it continue to nourish us and feed us as daily bread does. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for these words, these instructions, for the Torah portion of Vayikra, and that you would continue to keep your people safe. Lead us and guide us with your Holy Spirit and surround us in your perfect will. We pray all of these things on this Sabbath day in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Me
פניו אליך ויחונקה. יישא אדוני פניו אליך ואשם לך לך This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit LLgive.com. Thank you and shalom.